Last week we had Jesus telling the disciples that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you shall have no life within you. And many heard this and were troubled and went away. But the disciples said, Yes, but Lord, but who can we go to? To whom shall we go? And it was it, it was always deliberately provocative because of course, um, as we heard last week, um, you don't eat flesh with life in it. And interestingly, the word that's used for eat in that context actually uh, has a root of a gourmet. And the Jesus is saying, you should eat my flesh with relish and want to fill yourself with it. Not surprising in many ways of the way. Now we've got another one coming up. It's about purity laws and food. The gospel passage is actually second lecture, it's most straightforward. It's got half the verses missing and doesn't have the very last bit. But the Pharisees have complained to Jesus that your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat, they don't wash their hands, they don't purify all the vessels, they don't do this, 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 and this. And Jesus says to them, Don't you realize you're following the commandments of men, not of God? It's what, what goes into a person as food, then comes out as sewage. What comes out of a person as their words, that's what's defined on their actions. And then we've got this interesting word, thus we declare all foods clean. That just upended all the Jewish dietary laws. If you remember in the Acts of the Apostles, which of course is written before um, uh, the Gospel, almost certainly, um, you, you've got Peter having a vision on a rooftop of a sheep coming down with all sorts of animals that the Jews were not supposed to eat in it. And the voice says, rise and eat. And Peter says, oh no Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean, I can't possibly eat that. And it keeps happening, but the voice of God says, Don't you call unclean what I have called clean. And it actually took the early church, and particularly the, the Jewish part of it and the Gentile, took some years to come to terms with all of this. And still, I would guess, probably most of the Jewish converts, certainly those that lived in Israel, would have continued to, to keep the Jewish food laws because it was easier. And the odd thing is, is you know, we found there uh, with the Indian League traveling around India, but an awful lot of Indian Christians still think they're not supposed to eat pork. And they're not supposed to eat this. He said, well, have you not looked at this? What was Jesus doing by declaring all food clean? He was obviously, it wasn't just the mind and manners and the rules. He was introducing something quite new. I want to read you another passage which I've already substituted uh, for this gospel. It's from Matthew's gospel. Chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to attract Jesus in what he said. Then he sent the disciples to him along with declaration and saying, Teacher, uh, we know you're sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference, because you don't regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of that malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. 
and they brought them a denarius. And he said to them, Who is head this? And who's title? Well, the emperor. Well, he said, Give the emperor the things of the emperor, and not the things of the gods. And when they heard it, they were obeyed. Then same day, some Sadducees, the opposition, came along and said, There's no resurrection. So they asked him a question, saying, in Moses said, if a man dies childless, his brother shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, clever story coming. There were seven brothers among us, the first married and died childless, leaving the widow to his brother. The second the same, and also the third, all the accounts of seven. Last of all, the poor woman herself also died. In the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? But all of them are married her. Can you imagine they stopped and grinned to themselves and thinking, right, that's got him. And the Pharisees that have been listening, who are used to hearing this sort of um, attack from the Sadducees, were thinking, well, I'm glad he's talking to their party, Jesus, this and not us. Because we don't know quite how to answer this one. Jesus' answer is interesting. He says, you're wrong. You're wrong. Could you know time from the scriptures? Not the power of God. For the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you read what he said to you, said to you by God? I'm the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. He's God not of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard this, they were astounded and speaking. So Jesus takes them on by saying, You're totally wrong. We would probably find that difficult to do. It's just in the, in the 21st century culture that we're not meant to say to people, you're wrong, because that might not happen. There's a big debate in universities over another platforming of not having somebody who says something that you fundamentally disagree with. You might have thought the purpose of the university was to actually enable you to formulate arguments to work out what you actually do agree with and not protect yourselves from ones you don't. The Pharisees didn't believe in heaven and uh, in a heaven. They kept the law, but they were the sort of aristocrats of the community. They didn't believe in angels. They actually believed that everything that could be could be explained in the world around them. And there are people like that today. We would call them sort of properly scientific naturalists. If I can't find an explanation within this world, then I'll keep looking for the explanation, because any explanation that I can't find the evidence for is inadmissible by definition. They tend to go round and round in circles on that one. The Pharisees, by contrast, believe in a whole hierarchy of things. They believe in another world, a resurrection world to come, where everything you have in this world was to be carried forward and so the wives you have in this world, you would have in the next. As a result, that question from the Sadducees was acutely embarrassing to them. It was a very materialistic view of heaven, of what it was to be like. Interestingly enough, to a large extent, Islamic theology has taken over that view of, of what comes after death of, of what they would call heaven. But Jesus was saying, neither of you are right. You've both got the wrong idea. He's very dismissive 
section of the um, of Pharisees as well. Because he says, you keep the tradition of the elders. You're not keeping God's law. You set up a whole load of traditions in one way or another. And we probably need to look at our own life, our church life in the 21st century, to say to what extent are we actually to perpetuating the traditions of the elders, the traditions of the church, the traditions of our denomination, of our particular bit of our denomination. Is the way we do things the only proper way to do things? Is what the church, is the church to be trusted in defining God's laws? Think of marriage. Is the church to be trusted in saying that sort of relationship can only be between a male and a female? Is the Roman Catholic Church to be trusted in saying if you're not married in a Catholic Church, you're not actually married in the eyes of God? Is the church to be trusted in saying that actually women may do some things and not others, as has been in the past? We know from our own history that we move through these spaces, that we realise that actually no, this was not true, this was not something that was the law of God. And yet there are sections of the church that still want to hang on to these traditions. Receptions of the church, I must admit, probably particularly in, in other countries, that still think we should be keeping the Jewish schedules. But you're not allowed to have forms and jams and shelters and things like that. And you can't have pork and the various objects and pieces. But it's sector only. Because you're also forbidden to mix fibers in ancient Jewish law. So your poly cotton sort of shirt is an offence against your thing. Is it really? No. There are usually reasons for why these laws were established. But we attempted to bring them into our life as a community tradition of the elders. And what Jesus, the reason Jesus is having this conflict is he wants to point out that actually both the Pharisees and the Sadducees have got the wrong idea about heaven. It isn't somewhere either the Pharisees say it doesn't exist, or as the Pharisees would say, well it's like this world and all the good things of this world you will take into this, and it happens after you die. Jesus is actually saying, heaven, or the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and you'll find that in the Gospels, the kingdom of God is to be found now. And that what we're doing in this life now is also in some sense connected with the kingdom that we will realise more fully when God brings his new creation at the end of all things. Sometimes it seems you live our daily life and you think, well, I can't see much of the kingdom of God um, or the kingdom of heaven around me at the moment. But at times people experience the closeness. Some places are special that often get called thin places where the boundary between heaven and earth is so thin you can see through and feel through. Jesus is saying, no, there's something, there's something new that will come, but it's going to be made out of what is. Which brings me, actually, partly to a, a corollary 
but you're not in the sort of incorrectly stressful. Um, will I tell me? Will I see him again? Um, will we meet again? How will I know what he's like when we're simply souls in heaven? And I said, you don't have to worry. Because you won't be souls in heaven. That is not the Christian understanding of the afterlife. We do not believe, or we should not believe, in disembodied souls. That's another issue misunderstanding that came later in the church's life, because that's what, how the Greeks understood it. No, the Christian doctrine is the resurrection of the body. That all that is that makes us up will somehow be made into something which is like a body in the new creation. And the evidence for that is Jesus' resurrection, which is why it's so important that actually if his body disappeared and was reconstituted as a heavenly body that looked in many ways exactly like the one he had on earth, except somehow or other uh, nobody quite recognised it, first of all. You had to come to the thin place to realise that actually it was Jesus you were meeting. The disciples on the Emmaus Road, various other people, Mary at the tomb, couldn't recognise him at first. And thought, as it were, that we should clear enough to see through that thin place and realise that all that is will be made into all that will be. As a result, that great comfort, particularly uh, to those, say, for instance, um, whose bodies have disappeared completely or have been blown apart uh, in warfare. Uh, or an argument the Sadducees would use, modernist Sadducees. Well, you know, if you created somebody and you scattered the ashes anywhere, how was God going to raise that from the dead? The point is, actually, it's a new creation out of all that is. And he is in charge, and he has it. And so in a sense, you have to say, it's not very helpful to say, when we die, we go to heaven. Because actually what Jesus says, is when you die, I will come and take you to myself. That's a better understanding. I will come and take you to myself, and prepare you for my Father's kingdom. The passage I often use in funerals is uh, John chapter 14, where Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. In my father's house, there are, are many wedding places, the old version, many mansions. And I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I will come and take you to myself. Now, we don't quite know what happens between that and the final judgment and the fulfillment of the kingdom. We don't quite know because we don't need to know. All we do need to know is Jesus has promised to take us to himself. Is there some form of purgatory? The Protestant term for that is progressive sanctification after death, by the way. Now, is there, is there some form of preparation for that new life? Well, there might be. But actually, if Jesus has taken me to himself, I'd rather think that whatever happens then will be something I will benefit from and enjoy and relax into. So whatever it is, it's not to be afraid of. Your best friend has come to take you to himself. What I said to this lady. We leave things in trust 
in the hands of the fallen. Because his deed would be built in his own longer world, if he gave his only son, that all that he lived in would not perish, but had better last in life. Conflict can be necessary. But at times, perhaps, in your life, as you talk to people, and somebody comes out with something, it might be helpful to say, actually, you know, I don't believe that. I think you're wrong. I'm not going to argue. 